Um, sometimes life brings us to crossroads. Uh, sometimes we face great challenges. I'm sure all of you have faced some challenges. You've uh, come to some crossroads before. Maybe you came to those crossroads confident that you knew what to do, um, and then you discovered maybe you didn't. Uh, maybe you came to those crossroads not knowing what or which way to go, and, 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 and surprisingly, you made it all right. But regardless, it's at these crossroads in life that you often, that we often discover who we really are, and others see clearly who we really are. And, and sometimes we've got decisions to make that will bring a great deal of change on our lives. And uh, I don't know about y'all, but change draws out a lot of emotions in me. Um, change draws out one emotion or one feeling in my heart more than any other emotion, more than any other feeling. Change to me almost always equals anxiety. Right? Can we get an amen about that, right? Change means anxiety. Change means worry. Even good change, right? Even change that you know is necessary. Even change that you are looking forward to. There's something inside of you that it's almost like right when you get to the point of doing something that you want to do, you wonder, should I really do this? Is this really what I need to do? Is this really God's will, if you use that kind of language? Is this what I need to do? And change brings a lot of anxiety. It's the unknown, isn't it? Right? And, and one of God's greatest gifts to, to people is the fact that we get to you know, imagine, and we get to anticipate, and we get to kind of think about how things will be. But part of the, the Achilles heel, Achilles heel of, of imagination and the Achilles heel of thinking about the possibility is that sometimes that brings about fear, and that brings about worry. And, and let's be honest, it doesn't take change to bring about anxiety. We worry regardless, right? You don't need to think about change to worry. You worry anyway, and, and, and maybe some more than others, but we all know what it's like to worry. And it's something that we deal with, we face with uh, face on a daily basis. And I'll be honest with y'all, as a pastor, I'm confronted with two things on a daily basis. The commandment to not worry and the nature to worry. It's a pretty rough place to be, right? Um, it, it's the commandment to not worry because there are plenty of examples. There's 360 plus commandments to not be to be not afraid in the scripture. Jesus made it very clear that you should not worry. He said, "Look at the birds, like that's going to help." But he said that. Um, I tried sometimes; it doesn't. But the commandment is still there, right? That we should not worry. But the nature that we are going to worry is also still there. The the notion, maybe the reasons that you have. To worry are still there. And, and here's something I want to float out there for everybody to think about, and, and you may latch onto this, or you might blow it off as just mo- motivational nothingness that uh, you expect to hear from a preacher, but you don't want to do much with. But I truly believe this might help put a lot of our worries into context, into perspective. And you might disagree with me, but I think to worry as a Christian, to worry as a Christian in our day and age is a pretty fortunate place to be. Now, nobody's going to amen that. Uh, I can hear some crickets um, beginning to, to, to start their um, instruments up. I really believe that. That worrying as a Christian is really a privilege. Worrying as a Christian in America in 2019 is a privilege. And what I mean by that is that things that worry us are things that people around the world would dream of getting to worry about. The things that we come up against and are challenged by and that force us to make tough decisions and critical decisions, the things that most people will never face, and while we may face pressure, it's good pressure. It's pressure from the privilege, which I think beats the alternative. Don't you? I think nobody, none of you would trade to not have the pressure. None of you would trade to be underprivileged and therefore not have to worry 
because of the privilege that you have. And of course, it's all relative. I know that, right? Uh, you know, but think of some of the stuff that we get to worry about as Americans. You know, we get to worry about which doctor we might choose. And there are people around the world that think, are you kidding? You have health care? I mean, you have a choice? You have doctors? You know, we get to worry about affording a home or affording a car or affording education. And there are people around the world that would say, are you kidding? You own a home? You, your, your country has roads? Education is an option? We worry about politics, and of course we do. We worry about elections, and others would say, are you kidding? You have a vote? You're allowed to disagree with those in office and not be arrested for it? Your government has checks and balances so that no one can rise up and be a dictator? I mean, are you kidding? You worry about the things like that when you have those privileges anyway? And this might not make you feel better. I don't expect it to. But of course, when you're looking forward and you don't know what will be there, that can be suffocating no matter how much you have behind you. When uncertainty is out the window, it doesn't make it any easier. And, and, and I'm going to state something that's very obvious, and I want it to be obvious, but you know this, and me saying it maybe just helps you think, wow, that's pretty, uh, pretty novel. The solution for worry is never found in looking towards uncertainty. Of course it's not. It's always found in focusing on what remains certain. And here's the thing that happens. when It's kind of like a focalism. It's, it's some sort of uh, uh, thing we, zo- we zone in on. When we worry, it's almost like the things that are uncertain get maxed, maximized, right? It's like the font gets bigger on those things. And the things that are certain, the things that are never going to be uncertain, the things that will always be there and the foundation that we have, it's like it gets minimized, right? And we forget it's even there. You know, worrying is the enemy's way of accomplishing two things. We forget what we have, and we don't take advantage of what we have. Uh, Worry makes us focus on what we don't have, and it disables us, and it stunts our growth. And the enemy, the enemy can stunt your progress by substituting faith in possibility with worrying over probability. Now, the Bible says anything is possible, right? If you, you, nothing's impossible for those that believe. But the enemy uses worry to take away the faith in the possibility and get you to wonder about the probability. Oh, well, yeah, I know it's possible, but the likelihood isn't really there. I know that someone told me it's possible, but I kind of took three steps back and I begin to think about the likelihood and I just don't have any faith that it's actually going to happen. And that really kind of causes our foundations to crumble sometimes, doesn't it? You know, we don't know half the struggles that most of people in the world have. If they, only, if they only had half the foundation that we have, they would have relief and they would have courage instead of fear. If we only would understand and fully appreciate our foundation, we might be able to rise to the heights that we never thought were possible. And I think, I think that we must be confronted with our privilege. I think that we must be confronted with our possibility because God is a good father, isn't he? God's a good father who encourages his children and believes that you can grow and that you can make progress. And it's so easy to become complacent and unaware of how fortunate and how unfortunate others are compared to us. I really think, though, that we all know deep down the privileges that we have. And I'll go as far to say that That is why we often avoid anything that might convict us or might suggest better of us considering our affluence and our fortune. Sometimes we don't worry about what we don't know. I know know you do sometimes, right? You worry because you don't know and you're wondering what might happen. But a lot of us, we don't worry about what we don't know. We worry about what we do know. 
as in what we know we should be doing, as what we know God would have us to do, as to what we know is right, and it worries us because we don't want to do that thing. Right? God might be telling us to do something, but we don't really want to acknowledge it. And I love you. I love you. I really do. But it's not acceptable to just pretend like we can ignore it and be okay for it. Jesus told a parable about the kingdom of God one time. And he, at the end of this parable, he makes this kind of weird statement about those that, uh, those that have a little bit and what they will face in eternity. Then he turns to those in the crowd that have, have it pretty well, have it pretty good. And he says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now Jesus doesn't do us a favor and, and define they or what this even means. He just lets it linger. What are you talking about? Who's going to require much of me? And who's going to demand more of me? And what are you talking about? Jesus, heaven or eternity? What does this even mean? He doesn't ever define it. But I think that sends a pretty clear message, doesn't it? You know, there are times in our days, in our weeks, in any season that we face that we're confronted with the contrast between us and somebody that has it far worse than us however it may be. And, and God nudges us to do something. God is calling us in some way, may not be directly to respond to that person, but it may just be to get our attention to focus on what else is going on. And, and I'm not talking about just that we should pray for somebody, right? Praying for someone does not challenge us, right? It's safe to do that. I'm talking about a scenario that might inconvenience us, that might discomfort us, that might make us vulnerable, it might stretch us a little bit. And, and there is good that can be done for somebody, there is good that can happen for us and we get all so close to allowing God or the situation to melt our hearts and redirect our focus, but over and over again, we suppress it, don't we? We do this in church, don't we? And we do this when we read the Bible, don't we? If I was trying to convict you, I'd say we quench the Spirit. <laughs> and consequently, we don't move, we don't act, and we don't change because something just doesn't sit well with us, and we're uneasy about it, and we don't feel good about it. Don't we say those kind of things? Which really is nothing more than bowing to worry rather than bowing to God. That when we let those bad feelings and that anxiety settle, it's like we're bowing to it rather than to God. And I want you to look up here. God wants to use you in this life. This is why I'm telling you this, because I love you, but I'm responsible to tell you this, and you might not think I have much responsibility over your life, and maybe I don't, but I do have a responsibility to tell you this. God wants to use you in this life. He does. He wants to use you for incredible things. God wants to use you to love people. He wants to use you to bless people. God wants to use you to make an eternal difference, right? He wants to make an eternal difference with you, as in you're significant to the plan. You're important to the plan. You're not a commodity. You're not just one of a million. You're a significant, special, necessary piece of the puzzle. This shouldn't be surprising. Of course, God doesn't want to use you to hurt people. He doesn't want to use you to curse people. There are so many people around us that are already hurting. Their walls are down. They're disarmed and defeated. And they may not overtly ask us for help, but God might be asking you, and there are situations around you that God might be leading you into and turning your attention to that you could use and you could step into to bring glory to Him and good for so many others. Now maybe you push back and you say, you know, why does He want, me to, use, why does he want to use me for anybody's benefit but me? 
I mean, why can't this just be kind of me? And I don't want to sound selfish. I don't want to say that. But when I say it out loud, it sounds even worse. But maybe you were thinking it right. Why does this always have to involve other people? That's a good question. Christians, Christians, you can't. You should never assume somebody knows God like you know Him and has experienced Him like you have. And I don't mean that you should walk up and tell them. I mean you should show them. You may say, I don't know much. Yes, you do. If you're a Christian, you've been given salvation in Jesus Christ. He has saved your soul from eternal separation from God, hasn't He? He's pardoned your sin. He's delivered you from all of evil. He's given you grace and victory over death. We know this earth is not our home. We know that everyone lives forever somewhere. We know what, what happens today impacts what happens tomorrow. Come on. If you're a Christian, you know there's so much more on the line. And there are so many others that don't. And if you're a Christian that hold the Bible in your hand today, if you possess the Spirit of God in your heart, you know what so many of those that saw it with their own eyes wrote about. And that from that place, we're motivated to go and, and, and serve the Lord. Here's what John writes in a little letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon with, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was, which was from the Father, with the Father, and was made manifest to us. John says, I, I, I just can't even describe what I've experienced, and I've got to tell you about it. I've got to live my life in a way that makes it clear to you that I've seen something that you need to know about and that you need to experience, and I've got love, and I've got joy, and I've got peace that I need to show you, and I need to live in a way that makes it impacts you with it. The Apostle Paul was so radical about this. And you know, you might think, well, I'm out. The Apostle Paul was so radical about the life that God gave him and the change that God brought in his life. Paul wrote this concerning himself. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And he's not say, talking about always being behind a pulpit with a Bible. He's talking about living his life in such a way that imparts through his attitudes, through his words, through his actions, that imparts the grace of God to people and it points people to Jesus. Both John and Paul had experienced the radical grace of Jesus. They were aware of the moral obligation they had to share the good news and to live in such a way to point to Jesus. If that means imparting the goodness of God on anybody, they said that is our requirement. But here's what I know. When we talk about Paul and John, Peter, the disciples, the prophets, Old, New Testament heroes, we love hearing about them. We love hearing what they did, but we don't necessarily see a connection between what they did and what we should do, right? Now, we want to experience what they experience. I mean, hey, bring me all the miracles that you can bring me, but we don't necessarily want to do what they did or walk the path they walk, right? We don't want to do that, right? Because they went through some stuff. We don't feel like we can, and maybe we don't feel like we have it in us. And I mean, they were preachers, they were apostles, they were prophets, they were disciples, they had nothing better to do. I mean, they just, were they not just paid to sit around and read and study and write? I mean, come on, what better did they have to do? There's a challenge in every pulpit, and to every pastor and to every church. We can go beyond preaching about the Bible and preaching that Preaching that the Word of God inspires us and challenges us and expects us to do something. To make a change, to be what God wants us to be, to live the best or the better version of the life that He has for us. 
And, and I get it. You say, well, Justin, of course you say stuff like that. People like you expect too much from people like me all the time. And, and I get that, right? I'm, I'm a preacher. I read. I listen. I write. I'm not normal. I'm also not perfect. So don't admire me or put me on a pedestal. But I know, I know you'll never quit thinking. People like me, people like Peter, Paul, John, James. I know you'll never think they don't expect too much from you. And that's okay. So that's why they aren't the best jumping off points for this kind of conversation. This assertion that God has called us to rise up and do good and make a difference for His kingdom, for His causes, especially for His children. And this reality that, that we often know what to do. We often know what we ought to do. We just don't consider it due to the worry and challenge or inconvenience. And, and using those men as an example as how we can overcome this, they're not the best place to start. I know that. But I've got to say this, the biggest differences made in this world are often locked behind the biggest decisions. The greatest good in, this, in the world often comes after making great sacrifices. I need to say that up front because we need to know the reality. That the greatest good often comes after we make the greatest of sacrifices, whether they be personal or professional. And there's a story in the Bible that's so underplayed. It's one of my absolute favorites, but it's so convicting, it's so challenging. You may not like it as much as I do. On some days, I don't like it that much. It's a story of a person who is just like us. He's living the American dream of his day. He's worked his way up the ladder. He's vested interest in politics. He's at a standard of living that he needs to keep up. He has a 401k he's worried about. He's worked hard and deserved what he has and doesn't want to share with anybody. He and his family were afforded opportunity to enjoy the finest of living. They enjoyed luxurious days off. This guy didn't have time to think about anybody but himself. To be honest, he had little time for religion. He paid lip service. He knew his heritage, but he was focused forward. He took his eyes off where he came from. And the thought that his past should somehow influence or shape his future was a crazy idea. His story really is proof that the world hasn't changed that much in the last 2,500 years. And if there's anybody in the Scripture that you can learn from, you may not ever find anything in common with John or James, Peter and Paul or Jesus even, but I believe Nehemiah is someone that you can learn from and that you can find a little bit of yourself in his story. The promise of Nehemiah is, the story of Nehemiah is so inspiring, but don't get me wrong, it's very convicting. It's very threatening to our livelihood, to our comfort zones. But it's so good and it's so powerful. And you might be right where he was as we read. You might have already been there before and you know what it's like. As we're going to read about the time that God stepped in and wrecked his life to save his life. And many many more along with him. I'll explain the details, but let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. Short chapter, just 11 verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, fancy word for castle, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. This is their way of saying, Nehemiah, we've been working on this for 80 years and we've got nowhere but backwards. We've got nowhere but at all. We are actually in a worse state than we were when we first began this rebuilding project. 
And we don't know exactly what all that they said, but Nehemiah's response to this conversation in verse 4, So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I don't think he was just upset about what they were going through. We're going to find out he was moved by this and worried what it meant for his future. He was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he was compelled to go to the Lord and fast and pray. And he said, Lord, I pray, O Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and your mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, from the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we, we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that your command, you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And he's not just talking about the previous uh, scattering. He's talking about how they had not really been able to get this off the ground. But if you return to me to keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as my dwelling place for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your great hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah lived in the kingdom of Persia. He was, he was not nationally Persian. You probably know he was a Jewish man. He was two generations uh, out from the Jewish people being relocated to Babylon under the conquest that uh, Babylonia had went around the world and had conquered the nations of the Middle East. They were unstoppable. They killed most of the nations they conquered and most of the Jews they killed and made slaves. But uh, the house of Judah, the royal house of Judah, they brought them into captivity and they actually brought them to the king's court. The Babylonian Empire had a very wise practice. Rather than just bulldozing over the nation of Judah, they would take the royal administration of some of these nations. They took some of the dynastic family and they would assimilate the brightest and the smartest and the winsome and wise of the people and add them to their administration. Um, and tons of the sons of Judah, the lineage of the kings of Judah, were educated, trained, and employed by the Babylonian Empire. You know some of these men, Daniel, Abrach, Meshach, Abednego, and, and even when Babylon fell to Persia in 538 B.C., the Persian leaders came in, disposed of all the Babylonian officials, but the Jewish officials were spared, and even D Daniel was promoted to be a part of the highest of courts in the Persian government. And the Bible, and history actually tells us that Daniel used his place of leverage to inform the emperor of Persia, Cyrus the Great, that he was no accident. And maybe you don't know this, but Isaiah the prophet, who wrote hundreds of years before the Babylonian takeover of, of Judah, Isaiah the prophet wrote this from a word that God gave him. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, the gates may not be enclosed. There's been plenty of archaeological evidence, plenty of copies of this scroll of Isaiah that date back to 800 B.C. 800. Prophesying of an event that would take place hundreds of years 
later, of a man that would come hundreds of years later, Cyrus the Great, the Persian leader. And when Daniel, history or tradition tells us, when Daniel showed this scripture to Cyrus, Cyrus was convinced the God of Israel might not be the only God, but he's clearly a God. He's clearly a real God. And I've got to listen to what Daniel has to say to me. And tradition tells us that Daniel was this original Zionist who led this movement to see that Persia would sponsor a rebuilding process of the nation of Israel. So Cyrus issued a decree around 539 B.C. And this was the Second Temple era. Under the governor Zerubbabel, under the priest Joshua, and 50,000 Jews, the nation of Judah was allowed to rebuild. But it was not an easy project as most of the Jews stayed back in Persia and many didn't see the point in leaving the luxury they now had inherited to go back to a desert and rebuild in the ashes of defeat. So there was a group of men that went back and the project was really a non-starter. It took them 40 plus years to even build the temple. Um, There was plots to destroy the Jews from locally and even nationally. And about 80 years later, they still had not gotten very far. The temple was rebuilt, but it was a shadow of its former self. Again, the majority of the Jews, they declined to go back. Many of them had been born in Persia and saw no need to go back. And Persia was an incredibly uh, social upgrade in every way. The ceiling for Israel was, as an independent nation was only knee-high compared to what Persia, would, what Persia offered them. Persia was really the world's first major empire. Their conquest covered Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Europe. Never had been seen before. There were Jews within the administration that opted to take leave and go back to Judea, like Zerubbabel, like Joshua, but most did not. And most of the sons of Judah that assented to any position of authority and power, they saw themselves as much better off than any alternative timeline they could have lived in. And Nehemiah was one of those men who thought, why would I leave? Why would I step down? Why would I walk away from all this? Nehemiah was a third-generation Jewish exile and considered favored by God to be born into such privilege. And he came on the scene around 460, 450 B.C. He was raised in the system. He had his life made. He had benefits. He had blessings. He had a salary you would dream for. Why in the world would he leave? And everyone thought if Nehemiah, Nehemiah was an example of God blessing his people despite of the fact that Judah was no more. Nehemiah didn't have to fool himself with illusions of grandeur regarding Israel's potential return to greatness. He didn't have to campaign to make Israel what it once was. Persia was already great. He had life made. He could experience greatness now and for generations uh, to come, his line and his family would be taken care of. You really couldn't ask for much better. Nehemiah didn't have to dream of future joy and peace. He was living the dream. He had immediate fulfillment. And of course you know where this is going. You know what this means. As he's confronted by a brother of his that had taken the step down. Maybe you see where this is going. Like Nehemiah, you're busy. You've got tons of irons in the fire. And when life pulls at you in inconvenient, unnecessary direction, why would you turn? We have jobs to do. We have dreams to chase. We To pause and think that we might be off course, might be missing out on something more fulfilling is just silly. But I say to all of you as someone who loves you and someone who's called to serve you, I have a job to do as a church. Our church has a job to do. And our church's job is to equip the saints. That includes you for the work of the ministry. In whatever stage of life you're in, you only get the influence and reach for a short time before it's on to another stage and before the purpose or reason of the day may be left behind. 
What if you miss out on what God wants to do because you're unwilling to admit or open up to Him? And I say this, if we live for ourselves and we will only have ourselves to show for ourselves, even if you're living your dream life, if the only person that's going to remember it is you, is that what God made you for? For us to forget half the stuff we wish we could remember and only remember the stuff that we regret in the end. Here's the thing, as time passes, as eternity nears, it will become more and more clear the lasting investments that you've made with your life. Sometimes living with an eternal perspective is like taking medicine that's a slow release capsule, right? The joy is slowly released. The fulfillment is slowly realized. The immediate fulfillment doesn't seem to be there. And each day it dawns on you more and more though as you serve the Lord, as you focus on Him. Each day it dawns on you. I'm building towards, what I'm building towards is greater than what I will eventually, eventually, eventually leave behind. Shouldn't we be as excited about doing ministry as we are about making memories? Nothing wrong with enjoying life, but shouldn't we enjoy the life as God has called us to? And shouldn't we be as excited and as fulfilled doing ministry, doing what God has called us to do in the world, serving Him, doing good for others, stepping out, taking those risks? Shouldn't we be as excited about that as we are Christianity is calling us to more and better and grander. What if Christianity calls us to bring all of our lives, all of our attitudes, all of our perspectives under this idea that living in an optimum way for what's next is better than, better than, better than living in a marginalized way for what's now? What if that is what Christianity is all about? Nehemiah's story, we're confronted with this, and it's not an easy time for him. It's not an easy time for anyone. It never will be. As an eternal opportunity conflicts with his earthly occupation, he has a decision to make. Nehemiah knows what he needs to do, which conflicts with what he wants to do. He's living his best life now. But a brother of his confronts him. And puts the seed of a question. What if there's something better? What if there's more than just what we can cram into 70, 80, 90 years on earth? What if there is a next? What if we can live now in a way that builds toward what's next? And what if? What if that requires sacrificing our best today for an even better tomorrow? Now, I can't make you any guarantees. No amount of money you give, no amount of things that you do, I can't make you those guarantees, okay? But God can. What if this is what He's put in front of you in terms of how you're spending your life, spending your time, investing your life, and I know this might make you worry, I know, I know, I know, and this might just radically just threaten the, the, the whole structure of your life. I don't know what God's convicting you or calling you to do. I know this might worry you, but are you more worried about what you might miss today or what you could miss forever? Because I don't want you to miss out on anything today if you think it's really, really, really important. But I don't want you to miss out on what's forever either. Nehemiah is confronted with the condition of his brothers that have went out to rebuild the land. He knows God's will for his life. We don't hear it stated explicitly, but we can read between the lines. 
to leave his post of luxury and fortune to help his own people. They may never achieve their dream to rebuild Israel, uh, but he knew God was calling him to put his hands to that work. They were already doing it, even though it wasn't successful. And they knew this, when we put our hands to God's work, there will be no greater joy and no greater purpose. When we put our hands to God's work, we don't own it, we don't control it, we don't know where it might go ultimately, but one thing we do know, there is no greater joy and there's no greater purpose. Meaning that even if it doesn't take off, even if it doesn't work out, even if it's taken from us or blows up in front of us, when we're doing it for Him, our eyes are on Him, we don't worry over the work, we worship the God above the work. So if it's a bust, if it's a struggle, we don't focus on that. We focus on Him. But in this case, a group of rabble men and women tried to rebuild Israel. They needed a leader. They, needed, they had Persia's support and resources, but they needed a boots-on-the-ground, present and active God-called leader. The nation had failed to come together. The walls were down. They were vulnerable. They were disjointed. They desperately needed a leader because they lacked a vision. They lacked a future. Hananiah knew there was only one man suitable for the job the descendant of David, the rightful heir to the, to the throne of Judah, possibly Nehemiah. Persia hadn't scooped him up on accident. He hadn't been caught up and ascended to a place of prominence by accident. He had all the qualities of a godly leader, of a capable leader. And you may wonder, did Nehemiah know that he could have went back earlier? Of course he did. He didn't want to go. Would you have? He was in a really good place. Surely God didn't want him to not, or surely God didn't want him or expect him to reshape and reorganize his entire life. Surely God wasn't asking him to give up everything, was he? That's exactly what God called him to do. And what he wants many of us to do, or in certain areas of our life, be willing to do. He may not be asking you to do what Nehemiah did. He may not be asking you to do something as radical or as extreme. But he's always asking us to consider our priorities. Consider the attitude and the vision from which we live each day. He's asking us to reconsider. Maybe you've wondered, is love worth it? Is caring worth it? Is devotion worth it? Is my family worth it? Is my church worth it? Is obedience worth it? He's asking you to reconsider those questions that you might have walked away from. It may not seem worth it when you measure it up to what else you want to do or what you feel like doing, how you gauge the impact of doing any one thing He's asked you to do. But we must, we must keep things in perspective. God is calling us to something greater, something worth losing ourselves for. For the joy that's out there. Hebrews 12 says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin. Cling so closely. Let us run with the endurance, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. Because if you look at anything else, you will be distracted and discouraged. Looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, because hey, He started this, He's going to finish it. You can trust Him who endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy set in front of Him. And you're a part of that joy, right? To access the joy, to activate the joy, Nehemiah was going to have to step down. His walls were way up, and that's why his response was one of tears. I think he wept for himself as much as he did for those in this condition because he prays for God to forgive him even of being unfaithful. 
Nehemiah found himself where we find ourselves eventually. Would he continue to betray his true identity for immediate ease at the expense of eternity? Nehemiah forces himself to consider the bigger picture. He appeals to the God of heaven, not the God of Israel or the God of Persia. Bigger than his life, bigger than his job, bigger than his country, bigger than his own plans. He appeals to God's sovereignty, God's mercy, and God's redemptive power. He appeals to how God is in control, but God is also willing to forgive us when we've lost control. He forces himself to consider God's greater will and his greater need. Nehemiah finally deals with what he had pushed off. He knew he should have returned long before. He knew God had a will for the nation of Judah. He had royal blood in him, right? He knew the promise to Abraham, to Jacob, and to David. He knew God was going to bring a Messiah through David's house. He might not be that Messiah, but the Messiah was going to come through his house. He knew that Judah would be key in revealing and ushering in a new age that would change the world. He knew that God was going to save the world through this little nation and he could selfishly live for himself or he could consider what God was up to. Nehemiah had messianic blood flowing through his veins and in Christ, so do we. And that call to something greater, that consideration of something better is in all of us. And you will never be at peace. You will never be in God's perfect will if you ignore it. If you've accepted a life of chasing a dream that's all about memories and paper, if you've settled for a life of gripes and complaints because of what you didn't get to do, you can do what Nehemiah chose to do. It's not too late. He said, Lord, I pray, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Help me in the sight of this man my boss, the king, who is going to think I'm the most insane person alive when I ask him to let me go. Nehemiah prays for the courage, for the wisdom to know what to do, and the courage to follow through on it. He would have to go to his boss, the king, and request the unthinkable. I need you to release me from my luxury job, my lavish living. I need you to cash out everything I've got. I need to go to the desert and work on the Judea project. Nehemiah knew he was made for more. He was made for ministry. We all are. Whether it's a change of attitude at home or a change uh, giving our attention to uh, our place at work, whether it's a call to action in our community, there's ministry for us all to do. We need to turn towards the God of heaven like Nehemiah did and say, Oh Lord, God of heaven, how are you calling me to rise up? And if you ask it, He'll show it. He may be calling you to rise up above, above an area of disobedience, above an area of negligence. Maybe there's something in your life, in your home, in your professional path that's just not right. Maybe you live for yourself and you only have yourself to show for yourself. And it would be so easy for you to keep moving forward, but you know there's something better out there. Maybe it's a person that you need to walk up to. Maybe it's something you need to walk away from, a mission God's calling you to walk towards. Maybe you're not looking for ways to serve God because you know if you look, you'll see it, right? You know He's willing and you always shirk the conviction. And maybe, maybe now you can see the worry as a catalyst to worship and seek God's will instead of a reason to run away. God's asking you to step up and risk your comfort and your art. I hope that you're ready to rise up. I know we deal with worry and fear and discomfort. 
But what are you more afraid of? Losing today or losing everything? Being challenged today or being compromised for all eternity? And and I'm not trying to just scare you. I think this is real considerations that we need to think about. I know that's heavy, but I think a simple prayer could be the start of a world difference for you. Lord God of heaven, how are you calling me to rise up? It could just be the first step for you is just start believing again. Maybe you quit believing a long time ago and you've been pretending for a while, but maybe the first step is for you to say, you know what, there is a God, He's real, and He's calling to me, and I want to step up, I want to rise up, I want to listen. Maybe it's turning to that thing at home that you've been ignoring. Maybe it's turning to that thing at work. Maybe it's that attitude that you've been living from that is just bitter and bad and it's just not helping things. Maybe it is something as radical as Nehemiah. Maybe it is God. Maybe God is calling you to do something crazy. Consider the most. We need to start with, Here I am, Lord, raise me up. Give me faith. And if your heart's desire is right, as we sing this last song, I think these words aren't just words, but they can be a prayer. Give me faith. I'm here for you. The church is here for you. God is here for you. Let me pray for you. Father, I don't know what you're calling your people to do today. I don't know what they might be facing or confronted with today. Maybe this is real heavy and convicting for some. Maybe it's just what many expected, but they're not going to do anything with it. I don't know. Father, if somebody, if they're feeling that you you are calling them and you are compelling them to rise up, Maybe it's just a little step. And as we sing this song, maybe that little step for somebody is just a whisper of prayer. God, I, I, I want to believe. I want to trust you again. Maybe it's that big step that Nehemiah had to make. Lord, I'm cashing out. I'm walking out. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. Even if it costs me everything, I'm going to follow you anywhere. I don't know what it is, but Lord, I pray this altar would be open to everybody. This church would be an open community to everybody. If there's anybody in the house that would be open and willing to say, I need to go public with my faith, public with a call, God, let this church be receptive and warm. But regardless of what the need is on the heart of your people today, Lord, we sing and we pray. Give us faith. Give us faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.